You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. All right, we're streaming. Yeah, so uh, it's been a while since we've done one of these, huh, Matthew? It's been like three weeks. Denise Merriweather was the last last person. I've been on the road nonstop since since before then. But uh, yeah, let's uh, introduce our new guest. for everybody that's tuning in, this is the Educational Freedom Institute podcast, co-hosted by myself, Corey DeAngelis, Executive Director at the Educational Freedom Institute, and Matthew Nielsen, who is a co-founder of the Educational Freedom Institute. Today, we're lucky to have uh, with us Drew Holden. I'll put his Twitter into the bio. He's pretty active on Twitter. He's also a freelance commentary writer. He's had words written in New York Times, National Review, Washington Post, Fox and many other outlets. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us today, Drew. Yeah, Corey, Matthew, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's, uh, a two-part question to start off. One, can you tell us if you have um, a particular interest in the education policy world? What are your views when it comes to education? Give us a little bit of background on that. And then also we really want to dive into the title of this, which is, which is something we really haven't talked much about, which is what the media got wrong when it comes to COVID and the school reopening debate. And I mean, it, if there's any of that going on right now, let's talk about that as well, because I think we're getting into another school year where uh, some of this seems to still be going on. That's right. Yeah. So um, I think my my real interest in education is, is kind of trails some of my other interests um, in terms of a time perspective. So my big beat, the thing that I focus and talk a lot about is hypocrisy and accountability with the media, with politicians and with other people. I spent a lot of time looking at old takes that have aged poorly, uh, ideas that folks have that have, have, have kind of gone, gone bunk. Um, and so I've recently become really interested in, in education, the conversation around education and school reopenings, uh, because I've unfortunately had to spend a lot of time looking at old perspectives around the way people have talked about both school reopening in, in kind of the specific policy lens, but also more broadly, the way we think about kids in COVID. What's their risk? How do we account for that? Um, and so there's been obviously a lot of things that folks have gotten wrong throughout the pandemic. Uh, some of those, at least in my view, are, are more reasonable, right? Uh, in terms of what are the things that we want to do to try and avoid risk when we're not sure what's going on. Uh, but some of those are, I think, a little bit less forgivable. And a, a lot of those, unfortunately, intersect with kids. And so I've found myself writing, talking, and, and tweeting to uh, quite a bit about the educational issue lately because it really does feel like we're still fixed in a mindset that, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, maybe it never did. But certainly by now, we're, we can be pretty confident in knowing that the way that we think about the risk to kids from COVID um, is is wrong. So, 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 what do you mean by that? What is what what is the um, kind of the risk for kids when it comes to COVID, and and how yeah. that relates to school reopening? And what have you seen that's kind of that people have gotten wrong when when it comes to that risk level? Yeah. So, you know, I think. When everything first started with COVID, one of the first things that a lot of states, but not all, did was they closed down schools. They closed down schools for a number of weeks, and then obviously a number of months, and it kind of uh, had a long tail from there uh, in different places across the country where they said, okay, we don't know what this is going to mean for kids. We're going to lock it down. Um, 18 or so months later, we do have a pretty good idea of what it means for kids. In total, the latest CDC numbers have about 350 total deaths of kids, you know, kids who are under 18 
since COVID started. For a little bit of context, that's less than half and a little bit closer to a third, actually, of the number of kids who have died from pneumonia in that same time frame. That's less than the number of kids who have died from suicide. It's less than the number of kids who died from maximal drug overdoses. Unfortunately, when you actually, it, it's a little bit hard to, to disaggregate some of these numbers, but if the national trend in terms of increases in overdose deaths as a result of the lockdowns held for people 18 and under, we actually would have seen a greater increase in the number of overdose deaths than there were total deaths of people under 18 from COVID. Uh -huh. Despite all that, and all these numbers are out there, right? There, there, there's, there's no real dispute, I don't think, about any of these numbers. But for some reason, none of that thinking, none of that risk calculus has found a way to enter in the conversation around mm -hmm. kids and particularly around schools and whether kids should be in schools. So it seems like the media, what I've been pointing out for a little bit now is that the media, at least especially at the beginning, focused on one side of the equation, right. minimizing risk when it comes to dying from COVID, even if that was a really low risk, and then not looking at the other side of the equation. Well, what happens when you uh, close schools? What are the negative effects yep. there? Yep. Um, CDC exactly. just released some numbers na nationwide finding teen suicide attempts and, and emergency department visits related to those suicide attempts jumping by what, like 60, 70% for female students. Right. Right. So none, and, of that and was take, none of, none of it, that was exactly. considered. None of it finds its way in the calculus. And I think part of it was people were really scared, right? And so to, to flash back into what feels like a lifetime ago now, but back in July of 2020, um, Secretary Betsy DeVos, former Educational Secretary Betsy DeVos, had an interview with CNN that uh, just panned roundly by everyone. Everyone was losing their mind about, she's saying, oh, kids need to go back to school. She, she's willing to sacrifice your kids for the sake of her talking points, right? That was, that was the narrative back in July. Uh, CNN had a piece about how Speaker Pelosi and a, a few other representatives had slammed her. Uh, Rep. Ayanna Presley came out with this quote about how she wouldn't trust uh, Secretary DeVos to, to raise a house plant and nonetheless take care of her kids. I mean, truly, the narrative was was unbelievably fixed when all DeVos was saying, if you go back and rewatch the tape, was we got to get kids in schools. Like, th there are serious bad outcomes to not having kids in schools. And what we really need to do, and there's a lot of different things that have to happen in order for this to take place, but we need to go full speed ahead in finding out a way to get kids safely back into schools and doing everything we can to make that possible. But all so of that got lost. It did. Well, it did. Go ahead, Corey. And it was all lost based on no evidence of keeping schools closed, actually reducing any risk whatsoever. And then mm -hmm. yep. I think all along we had, you know, evidence from other countries like Sweden that that kept their school, kids in schools. And then other and then we kept getting more and more studies suggesting right. that the reopening of schools wasn't correlated with reductions in community wide transmission. But we kept doing mm -hmm. it anyway. Exactly. And mind you, none of those studies seem to find their way into the mainstream papers. And this is, I think, what really kills me, too. There's a study I'm sure you guys are familiar with in for schools in Nebraska, where they looked at 20,000 students in schools who had continued moving forward with, with in-person learning. And they ended up only having two cases of kids who got coronavirus. And mind you, when we talk about kids getting coronavirus, the risk for a kid who gets coronavirus is vanishingly low. Right. It's, it's unbelievably low. I was, uh, I was, I was reading a, an analysis of some of the numbers that the difference between an 85 year old getting coronavirus and a 20 year old is 610 times. So for however many cases it would take to have one 20 year old die from coronavirus, all other factors being equal, we would expect 610 deaths for seniors. That's wow. and and that's between 20 and 85. When you look at between zero to eight, 
and zero to 18 and 25. It's also orders of magnitude. It's huge. Yeah. It's an enormous gap. And yet none of the conversation seemed to take any of this into account. And there was this theory early on in the pandemic that we couldn't send kids back to schools because there were going to be hot spots. There are going to be clusters. There's going to be this local spread. You got all of these kids. They're not going to wear the mask. They're not going to be able to, you know, they're going to be coughing all over each other, whatever. And then we knew relatively early on that that simply wasn't happening. And we've now known for 14 or 15 months that that hasn't been what happened. We had all of these naturally occurring experiments around this and it never came to pass. And yet none of our thinking on these issues have shifted, even though we know all this now. Well, and a lot of the mainstream media didn't want to uh, point out that the private schools were more than able to do it with no problems. Daycares were able to do it. Every other business that had more risky customers were able to reopen, but the safest places in society at law, as far as the public sector was not, was not able to, to get it done. I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm sure you guys remember the demands, right? The, the, there was, um, I think it was in Loudoun County, right? Right by me that they, the, the head of the Loudoun County public schools said they would need five Pentagon sized schools in order to safely educate their students. Like it's absurd, right? When we look back on it, it's, <laughs> it, it, it really is laughably ridiculous. And yet so much of our thinking, even now, as we head into a new school year, so much of our thinking is still pretty closely tied to that. It's, well, we need a ton of space between them and they can't have interaction. Teachers unions came out, what was it, this morning, yesterday, and said that actually now we do need all of our teachers to be vaccinated, even though the Biden administration says that that isn't true. Um, and so mm -hmm. you just, you have this constantly, it's, it's interesting because in one sense, you have a really fixed mindset of what needs to happen that should have evolved. And then you have these moving goalposts about what actually needs to happen based on what the, the teachers unions are demanding and that they're completely unbelievably out of sync. It's really interesting. And uh, on this note, um, you know, going back to the Betsy DeVos comment, there, there's been kind of this um, uh, catch 22 uh, mm -hmm. for people who are advocating for children uh, being in school, but really hating the Trump administration. Right. So yeah. it's like, you know, you have that whole group of people too. And, and talking about how the media missed the mark over the past 18 months. I mean, it, there's that aspect of it where I think you would have had a lot more people coming out and saying, you know, no, I mean, come on, people, we need kids in school because right. of mental health issues. I mean, if even if you just took that yep. by itself, you know, exactly everything else aside, but they wouldn't do it, or, or at least very few people would do it because of the politics of COVID. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so what, what are your thoughts on that, Drew, of that kind of, you know, difficult interplay between, I, I really want kids to be in schools mm -hmm. because of all of the benefits and the low risk, but I can't advocate for that because right. I'll be seen as you know, something I'm not, which is a Trump supporter, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, you know, I, I, living in DC, I, I hear it a lot that there are people who are like, well, you know, I don't really want to wear a mask, but I don't want people to think that I'm a Republican walking around without a mask on. And so I think there is a little bit of that that infected it. But I, I think more than anything, Matthew, to your, to your earlier point, it really was a Trump and DeVos thing, right? If you remember when, when DeVos was first confirmed, the conversation around who she was and what she was going to mean for students was so 
egregious. It was so dramatic. It was, she was going to come in, she's going to close every public school. We're going to, you know, and that, that, that there were so many people who are so fixated on anything that she wants and anything that Trump wants, they have to be wrong and bad for kids. And so there's this reflective mm -hmm. rejection of any policy they have that might make sense. But I think what really kills me is, you know, the pen, obviously the lockdown and that the consequences of the lockdown have been really bad. They're not surprising, or at least they shouldn't be. Right. We knew going into this, there, there were countless studies around the sorts of things that lockdowns do to people and what they do to kids. We knew that overall health would go down when you have people shut inside all day. We knew educational attainment would go down considerably when you have kids not in the classroom. I mean, I, what was it? There were over, the, the, we've seen millions of students who have just fallen off the rolls. We don't know where they are. And, and we knew all of these things going into it, that we had, we had studies, we had reasons to believe that going into this decision-making process there were consequences on the other side of this. And I think you're right. I think people of goodwill, no matter their politics, had to be able to look at those who were making these decisions and say, ooh, this is bad. This is going to be bad. But it really was that, ah, but I can't, I, I can't be with Trump, right? I can't, and of all things too, especially I would imagine for, you know, for parents, for educators, agreeing with Trump about the well-being of my children. If you're, if you're a well-heeled liberal, that's, I mean, that's unthinkable, right? Of all the things Get to, it. to possibly Get to agree it. with this guy on, this is the last one you could possibly do. And so unfortunately, I think that, that thinking really did seep in. Uh, and we've obviously yeah. seen it's had, it's had really considerable consequences. Yep. So, so one of the articles that I had fact-checked came from Washington Post here. I have a, I have a little screenshot of it. Yeah. We'll bring it up. We'll bring up the quote. I tried to send the editor this quote to say, this is disinformation. There's no evidence for this. And I'm, I'm sure you remember this back and forth, Matthew, because I tweeted about it a lot, but here's a snippet from a Washington Post article. It was an opinion editor, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's still in the they Washington fact Post. Oh, look at how small it popped up. That's not the one that I want. Uh, <laughs> But it had to do with the disproportionate uh, amount of teachers included in COVID obituaries, which is absolutely not the case. Yeah. Um, okay. They were they were trying to make the argument that teachers were dying of COVID in larger numbers yeah, than okay. here's here it's it's gonna come up now. It's probably bigger. Okay. There we go. They said, quote, even with the limited school reopening so far, the disproportionate number of teachers appearing in COVID obituaries is striking. They're arguing against D.C. public schools uh, having yeah. a plan to reopen. There's no evidence of that. If anything, right. from other countries, they found that school teachers were, after adjusting for age and, and mm -hmm. sex, were actually less likely to die right. from COVID than other similar professions. Yeah, which again makes sense when you think of how few teachers have been in place. And also the other factor that goes into all this is the vaccination rates, right? Teachers are among the most vaccinated professions and have been for many, many months, right? And now, now that they're at like 85%, I, I think Wine Garden's new figure, what they have to be is 100%, right? Because you got to keep moving the needle or else they'll have to get back in the classroom. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, across all professional classes that people who are not having much interaction with other people who could potentially be infected aren't going to die at disproportionate rates. And so it really does, it really does boggle belief, I think, uh, when, when you get into making those sorts of claims. And again, you know, I think part of this is there's a little bit of a sleight of hand when you, when you make a claim like that. If there were upticks in the number of teachers who had died on anything other than just I'm looking at a couple of obituaries, 
we would have those numbers, right? There are a lot of reporters who would be super interested in reporting about those numbers. And so if you have to go all the way down to, I'm finding a handful of obituaries and some of them happen to be teachers, it's probably a good tell that you're not actually interested in telling a story that fits with the facts. And that's not, exactly. that, that, that's not yeah. true. You can't say it's disproportionate with, you know, you look through a couple of obituaries and saw, that's not scientific. Right. And the editor said so, their defense was something along the lines of, well, this person was, it's just their subjective interpretation of how things are, but disproportionate is an objective term. You can say right. it's stri if it's striking to you that you saw a couple that's subjective, yep. but yep. it's objective for you to say that they're more likely for, to die than, than other professions. Right. But right. so we, we, you've talked a little bit about Randy Weingarten. I don't, I don't believe a damn word she says. Yeah. I mean, look, she's been arguing that she's been open, trying to fight to reopen schools since April of 2020. We all know that's not true. Not true. Yeah. She just changes the definition of what it means to to actually fight to reopen. If it, if it was true, they're really bad at it because the private yeah. schools were able to yeah. do it all along. Right. Um, but, you know, they were changing the reopening goalposts every step of the way. Now she's saying that 90 percent of the teachers are vaccinated. I think I saw some numbers from New York City, which is a more liberal area, high and, and uh, an area that I think has more a higher vaccination rate than other places in the country. Yeah, I think the teachers' vaccination rate there was only about sixty percent. So that's not meshing well with the number reported by Randy Weingarten. And the other day, she was saying something. She was she, like, she hinted at. Uh, supporting a mandatory ma vaccine for teachers. But mm -hmm. then she yep. kind of walked it back a little bit and said, well, there are exemptions. Right. So, so she's gone back and I'm forth all along on this, right? I mean, she, <laughs> she originally said that teachers need to be the first ones in line for vaccines. And then the Biden administration came out and said, uh, actually, no, like we've, we've talked to the CDC, we've run the numbers. You don't, you don't need to have all of your teachers vaccinated. It, it doesn't actually make sense to do that before we were up in schools. Lo and behold, um, after a couple of meetings with Weingarten and the Teachers Association, uh, I think three weeks later, the Biden administration changed that guidance to walk it back a little bit more in, in favor of the teachers. And wouldn't you know it, the, the Teachers Association was Johnny on the spot to applaud that change. And so she's every goalpost that exists around reopening schools, she's changed at least a couple of times. And at the end of the day, like she knows, I think that the New York City case is instructive. She knows it's not going to get to 100%. 100% of teachers, like 100% of all professions, don't want to take the vaccine. Whether or not right. you agree with that, that's a simple fact of life. And so particularly in uh, a, a place like New York City, that actually doesn't surprise me over much, right? Because when you look at the, um, when you look at the disparity between uh, whites and Asians in New York City receiving the vaccine and people of color receiving the vaccine, there is a pretty, there's a pretty considerable delta. And so what it probably comes down to, and I, I had a piece for, for Washington Post about this, um, this past week about vaccine skepticism within communities of color in DC and more broadly, that's, I mean, that's built in. That's really, it's nothing we haven't been able to crack. And so yeah. what Weingarten is essentially saying is in, in these places where we have more teachers of color, we're not going to send kids back to school. And one of the things too, that I think has been lost throughout this entire conversation around schools and school reopenings is it tends to be poor communities of color that are hurt considerably worse than well-to-do, well-heeled white schools. It's the parents who can't afford to get their kids in pods or get them with a private tutor who really get hurt by this stuff. 
And that for some reason that bounces off Weingarten and the Biden administration that's supposedly committed to racial justice and everyone else. Like not, none of these conversations managed to find their way in. Um, and it's it, it's a tragedy, right? Because we can measure this in lives. Well, and, yep. the, and the media is not helping one bit. Uh, right when, when summer started, pretty much every school district was saying, yeah, next time we're going to reopen. But they've been doing this yeah. all along. They've been just kind of moving it kicking the can down the road. And then when that date actually comes, as we've seen before, they change things up. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing it again. When when we started coming into the summer, everybody kind of stopped talking about school reopening debates that it was over. That was a done right. discussion. Exactly. And I was kind of sitting here like, you know what? They've done this before. And I don't really believe it that, that they're going to just open all the schools up in the fall. And then Randy Weingarten started tweeting Mm-hmm. A little bit more, a little bit more often throughout the summer mm-hmm. about you know this Delta variant about yeah. oh, I'm kind of concerned and I would quote tweet her and just put one word I'd say foreshadowing yeah, like, yeah. I was gonna bring that up in the pumps. yeah yep yeah and so what do you think Drew about how the media is covering the Delta variant I, it seems to me like they're pretending like this is a, a whole new conversation that's separate from last year's you know right. COVID thing right. and now um you know they're reporting cases instead of percent they're reporting cases uh-huh. instead of hospitalizations yep. and deaths right yep. do you think the media is helping fuel or set the stage to keep more yeah. schools closed this year yeah you know Corey, un- unfortunately i do and i think it's two big things that jump to mind in terms of why i think that that's probably the case the first is the way that the media has treated conservative governors right you look like someone like DeSantis, who's pushed really hard to keep kids in schools and has been able to keep kids in schools that these are the governors who get lambasted by i mean day in and day out you have a new media piece explaining that DeSantis simply doesn't care that he's doing this to own the libs he's doing this to so that he can run for president in 2024 whatever it is completely lost from it is maybe they're onto something, maybe kids should be in schools, right? And so when you see that, I think it really does unfortunately set the stage for, you'll have conservative governors who are saying these kids need to be back in schools. And then you'll have a narrative conversely saying, these governors don't care about kids. All they wanna do is score points for their base that says, aha, look, we, we, we ignored COVID and so we're the best, which is, which is just divorced from reality. So I think that's one, one big part of it. The other big part of it that I think is really important that we probably aren't focused enough about just more broadly is, you know, at the end of the day, the media got a lot. They, they made, and I don't know how to say this without sounding a little bit Tim Hattie or a little conspiratorial, but um, <laughs> the, the, if it if it bleeds, it leads is still a mentality that I think exists very, very widely across the media. Um, when you are run on clicks, when you make your money with clicks, it is always going to be in your very strong incentive to tell a story that scares somebody enough so they go and click on it and are interested in it. And so the New York Times has taken a ton of criticism, particularly over the last couple of weeks, about the way that they've talked about the Delta variant through that, right? There's a lot of things that we know, at least anecdotally so far from Delta. It's less likely to kill you than whatever the alpha variant is. Uh, It spreads a little bit more rapidly, which is some reason for concern, uh, but people aren't dying. And most importantly, the vaccines work against it. But we aren't seeing a meaningful difference in terms of the survival rate for people with standard varieties of coronavirus and the Delta variant. That's great news. Right? That, that should be in big, bold, flashing letters across every headline when we're talking about the pandemic, because that's the thing that matters. And it's a super strong incentive for people to go out and get the vaccine, I think, if we now know that it's going to keep you super, super safe. 
Instead, what we've done, and the CDC, I think, unfortunately, has driven a lot of this, is they've come out and said, well, it might just be one mutation away. Who knows? But now that we're all vaccinated, it increased the risk that maybe it mutates in a different way and maybe it becomes more lethal. Who knows? Uh, you still need to be well, you still need to be locked in your homes. You still need to be worried. Bring the masks back out. And so I think both of those narratives, unfortunately, uh, the, the way that they they will continue to play, I think, unless unless they're kind of stopped dead in their tracks is we'll get to a point come late August, early September, where there are a lot of people who are saying it's still too scary to send your kids to school. Uh, and that's bad. It's wrong. It's disconnected from the facts. And the people who are going to suffer as a result of this are the kids who have every reason to be in school and should have been in school all along. We know all of these things now. Yeah, I mean, one on, on one hand, you know, it's kind of irritates the crap out of me that this is still going on at, you know, the media and the teachers unions are playing into the fear mongering, um, which hurts right. a lot of families by not having, yeah. if they, if, if they're not going to be able to have options this year, and if they're not, if they're going to have to send their kid in, into a school in a certain environment that they don't, they don't agree with that. I don't mm -hmm. like that that freedom is being taken away from families. On the other hand, we saw the best year ever for school choice in, in 2021. <laughs> yep. I feel like, you know, this is horrible, but the school choice advocate in me says, keep it coming, Randy Weingarten, keep overplaying your hand. And we're just going to free yeah. more and more kids from your clutches as we go forward. The longer that this, you know, this, this continues, um, it, it might be a, a win when it comes to long-term support for educational freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't see how it, it doesn't prove to be that way, right? I mean, when you think about the people who have really taken their credibility and their reputations and set them on fire over the course of the last 18 months, it's really, really hard for me to think of an organization, even more so than public health experts, than teachers unions who have truly, truly just dabbled themselves in gasoline. And, and tossed a match on top and, and don't blame you right I don't, like if i like I, I don't have kids but if i had kids in public school i would be looking around and saying what what am i doing and how can i stop doing this thing right i mean i'm sure you, you guys know all these stats but for every for every six months a kid is out of school they lose about a year in terms of not just the the new education but the retention the fact that they're you know they're shedding all of these lessons that usually you got a little bit of a summer break where kids lose a little and then the next school year reinforces it it comes back um, that might be on the that might actually be understated in terms of the consequence of these things, particularly the longer out we go. And so it, like I just it, it blows my mind. And I know that people are entrenched in their thoughts and how they how they think about school reopening and how they think about the coronavirus pandemic. But when you start adding up those numbers and then multiply it across the fact that 20 percent of the American population is under 18, those numbers add up really, really incredibly quickly. Um, and so I don't know how in good faith you could, there are parents who can sit back and say, eh, my kid's future is, is if they have the means, again, lots and lots of, part of the problem, I think all of this is, is so many parents don't have the means available to them to change course and to do anything other than put their kids in public schools. But for those who do, I don't, I don't understand the thinking of how it could be worth mortgaging your kid's future at this rate, uh, rather than doing something else to take action. Well, so, so this, this brings up an interesting point. Um, because we saw so many examples over the past 18 months, uh, even almost immediately after lockdowns and, um, you know, as kids started going back into school, we saw uh, politicians, we saw union leaders, local and even like, you know, at the state level, union leaders mm -hmm. starting to take their own children back to schools 
while in the in the next breath saying we can't reopen because it's unsafe and so you know going back to the hypocrisy thing you like to call that out drew um uh, which I love reading those, by the way. It's fun to, to read Thank those you. when you write about that stuff. It's There's so unfortunately a lot of it. it yeah, well, and exactly. And, and EFI here at Educational Freedom Institute, we have an entire map yeah. of, you yeah, know, the school seen. choice hypocrisy map, uh, one of our more popular pages on our website. And if you could speak to that a little bit, it just happens, like you said, way too frequently. It happens all the time. And we saw it again, almost immediately. People were, I mean, it was like lockdown. Mayor, Mayor Bowser. Mayor Bowser. Here in uh, D.C. telling me I had to wear mine. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. Exactly. So thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think political hypocrisy isn't anything new, right? We've, we've seen a lot of these things before, but I think what it does, and it doesn't get picked up on enough, particularly by the mainstream media, I think is where, where I have a lot of bones to pick here is, for a lot of people, the idea that they're, like, there needs to be suffering involved to our response to the pandemic makes sense when it's not their suffering and it's not someone they care about suffering. And so the idea that, uh, yeah, you know, it's gonna be tough to close down the schools, but some, you're just gonna have to grin and bear it. Um, that logic is a lot easier to hold when you know that your kid, the person who you are fundamentally concerned about, they're going to get to avoid that. They can skip by. And I think, unfortunately, what it does, at least to everyday people, right? And a, again, it should be a really strong narrative uh, across the entire corporate press. And for some reason, it isn't. But when you have things like this, when you have Mayor Bowser putting in place a new rule and then violating it herself within 16 hours, it sends a super clear signal to everyone sitting there watching at home to say, you don't care. You don't buy this, yeah. right? Like you think this is bogus. And if you actually believed that this was something worth doing for everyone, rather than just the people who, who you can compel to do these things, you would just do it. And I think one of the reasons that it keeps happening, uh, and this gets back, I think, into the media as well, is governors, mayors, other people for the last 18 months, a lot of them have gotten plaudits for appearing tough on COVID by doing things that whether or not they're right, right, even even taking out the, the, the value judgment and all of it, simply doing something is enough to earn people some pats on the back. And I think that you saw that with Bowser with the new mask policy. And so while politicians are, are, are driven by lots of things, I think one of the biggest impulses throughout all of this has been act like you care. Do something because it will show people that you care. And unfortunately, the people who are having to bear the brunt of those consequences in many cases throughout this entire lockdown process have been kids who can't go to school because a governor or a mayor wants to look tough to the teachers unions who are going to score them when they run for re-election. And that's, the, I think that's to me, what yeah. is really driving the hypocrisy and really is what makes it just so unforgivable. Yep. It so makes sense. So one thing I've noticed, I don't know if it's just the teachers union response and that's, and just because the teachers unions are responding, the media is covering it one side and not the other, but there's a lot of Republican governors in what, what eight States now, Florida, Texas and Texas included that have yeah. banned mask mm -hmm. mandates in school. Yep. So families right. can all decide for their own kids. And the teachers unions have responded to that by saying they're subverting local control, which just means teacher union control. Right, right. Because look, the, the most local form of control there is is the family unit controlling, right. deciding for their own kids. Um, but then the media hasn't covered the Democratic governors that have implemented mask 
mandates in schools, which mm-hmm. also subverts local control. Right. But it's just not getting covered that way. And I, I don't know if it's because of the unions aren't attacking it or. Yeah, you know, know, when it aligns with their policies, right? Yeah, I mean, you would think exactly. You would think the media would at least, when this is covered in a red state, say, "Oh, but the unions don't use this." They could at least note, like, the unions haven't said this about any of the blue states supporting right. local control. <laughs> right. It's and, and I mean, it's it's really a, a heads I win, tails you lose sort of scenario. I think in terms of the coverage, and what it really comes down to is, I think, in the back of their minds, right? We know, like, one of the one of the things that I always kind of get up on my hobby horse about is, we know that about eighty percent of the media leans left, and so. I think what it really comes down to at the end of the day is the overwhelming majority of reporters think the teachers unions are right on this stuff. They think they're right on the mass mandate. And so the reason why it only, the, the, the reason local control only matters in one direction is because it is advancing a policy priority that is broadly supported and not just supported, seen as the only reasonable approach by most of the people who are doing the covering. And so, and then when you see it on the flip side, right, when all, when governors say, hey, you know what, schools, you can't tell kids what to wear on their face when they come to schools. Parents, your decision to make, it's on you. If you want to do it, do it. If you don't, don't. That instead is going against what they're actually looking for. And so it becomes just as much of a threat because they just want everyone to wear masks. They want everyone, they, they want everyone to battle the teachers unions on these sorts of things. And so the local control might be a, a convenient rhetorical tool to be able to beat people over the head with and say, this is why you're doing this thing wrong. But really what's driving it is they want everyone wearing masks. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we see this in academia too. Um, I was mm-hmm. one of the fir- I was the first person to do a study linking teachers unions to school closures. Personally, right. I, I thought, you know, hey, this is this is a problem that they're doing this. But when I wrote my article, because I knew I, there was going to be a lot of left leaning academics reviewing my paper, mm-hmm. I made sure not to take a side. I was just right. There's this yeah. relationship. Um, we don't know if they're making the right decision or not, but there is this relationship. I ended up revising the paper later and, and adding in more personal judgments. When I found yeah. it, I had more friendly reviewers, but the initial draft wasn't like that at all. And I just yeah. read a paper using Iowa data just like a week or two ago. They did mm-hmm. a similar study linking, and this was George Washington University researchers, linking teachers unions to mask mandates. And the way that they wrote it was so you know, just praising the the teachers unions for being heroes, for saving the kids, but they didn't cite any studies suggesting that, or at least I didn't see them cite any studies suggesting that overall the masking is actually reducing risk for kids in schools. I don't right. n- think that's the state of the evidence. I don't think we have significant evidence. I was just that, saying, but... so there, there isn't, there's research that's in yeah. that, right? Like that's, okay. that's I think one- I always one like to the... be careful with, with what I say, but really I good. haven't seen significant evidence suggesting that the mask mandates in schools have reduced serious COVID risk for kids. And right, But they, right. that didn't stop the, those researchers from saying, oh yeah, they're heroes, they're saving our Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And at the end of the day, like part of it is we don't there have not been enough kids who have gotten sick from or died from COVID to probably be able to do a, a, a very comprehensive review of that information anyway, to know if any of these mass mandates in schools would even work. And I think that's one of the one of the really frustrating things in all of this is setting aside personal perspectives on mass mandates and school closures even and, and, and any of that. There's one side who are making the decisions and doing so in a real, real absence of evidence, right? We, if we don't, it, we're, we're asking kids and parents to do all of these things, jump through all of these hoops, keep their kids at school or keep their kids out of school for a year. And we don't 
actually know if any of that is doing anything, right? Even, right. even if you want to say, I think for me, the thing that I come back to is if we're balancing these two things, I have perspective on how we should balance these things. But I think it's important to remember that we're trying to do a balancing act where we don't actually know if the weight on one side of that scale is even real. And yet for some reason that doesn't ever, like, I know you guys talk a lot about this, but for whatever reason, that doesn't, that doesn't find its way into these conversations. It's almost like, uh, you know, you, you get kind of these, like the, these, these moral scares, these moral outrage scares where you have people who are like, ah, we got to protect the kids. It's like a, it's like a 1970s Satanist thing all over again, where you have these assumptions about, ah, this must be bad for children. Look at all this evil rock and roll music. We don't actually have any, you don't have any hard evidence that any of these sorts of things that you're so scared of are actually happening. And we're just seeing that play out at a fully national level with enormous consequences. And we're not looking that layer below to find any of the data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I mean, thought, yeah oh, well, I just, I just wanted to say, yeah, the, it seems like a lot of the people in this discussion operate from the standpoint of uh, the burden of proof being on the people who want freedom. I think the burden of proof right. should be on the people trying to restrict our liberties. And mm -hmm. so you'll see in like Twitter conversations, people saying, oh, can you prove that the mask mandates don't uh, exactly. reduce the transmission? It's like, well, that's <laughs> yeah. proving a negative. The burden of proof Good is luck. supposed to be on you claiming that there's a relationship. Exactly. So and again, it's, a, it's the knee-jerk decision-making. I think part, part of the big problem is as soon as this thing came out, we weren't sure what to do. We had locked everything down. And so right from there, when, I, when people start thinking about, well, what should we do now? We're having a conversation about reopening as if it actually made sense to close in the first place for schools mm -hmm. and for everything else. And so I, I get I get why people think that way, but I think it's important to call it out and recognize that it's wrong, that you can't, you can't prove a negative on any of this stuff. And so the burden of evidence absolutely needs to be on the people who are willing to hamstring the educational attainment of our nation's kids. That always should be the burden of evidence on this, uh, but it's not. And, and that's, I think that's a real tragedy. So what do you think about, so you just mentioned school reopenings. We talked a little bit about masking. Some politicians mm -hmm. and officials have proposed um, that if schools don't reopen or if they do force all kids to wear masks, give the parents a voucher, let them, choose an alternative school, whether that's a homeschool setting or private school or another public school. I think yep. Rand Paul just had a statement one or two days ago where he made this case that he's going to he's going to introduce a bill to stop any bill that goes through Congress if a, lo a locality doesn't uh, reopen their schools fully for in-person instruction. And I think yep. there's been, Florida Board of Education just formally approved Mm -hmm. letting people vote with their feet if they disagree with the mask mandate in the schools. What do you think yeah. about uh, those kinds of uh, proposals? And then also, have you seen any uh, media reporting on these types of things and whether, yeah. whether it's fair or accurate? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think they're a great idea, quite, quite frankly. I think that when we start thinking about how much American taxpayers pay per student. It's a lot of money, right? And I know you guys know this, but Americans, whether or not you send your kids to public schools are paying an enormous amount of money every year to support these schools. And so to me, if you level that up and say, okay, we're not, we're not paying for these schools, we're paying for education, it would make eminent sense to me that you can take that check and say, okay, I am going to make the decision to say, I am going to pay my component of the education for my kids and do X, Y, or Z. That makes total sense to me. Um, it's interesting that you, that you ask about the, the coverage on it because I really haven't seen much of any conversation around <laughs> it. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't. I don't find that terribly surprising. You know, I think that <laughs> it's one of those things. And I think a lot of the school choice issues tend tend to come down to this. 
when you have one side that is so entrenched against an issue, but doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of uh, a huge intellectual leg to stand on, it it almost it becomes almost problematic to even talk and report about it. Right. Yep. One of the things I think we've seen across the entire pandemic is, sure, you might not agree with the way that, say, Governor DeSantis is handling Florida. But if there's ammunition on the other side to say, at least compellingly to their audience, this is a bad thing, you can still report on it, right? You can get away with talking about those sorts of things. The problem becomes if even people on your side aren't particularly compelled by the logic that you're advancing. And so you've got a Democratic Party that is unbelievable, maybe more so than any other single issue. They're unbelievably beholden to teachers unions on these issues. They're not beholden to parents, right? None, none of this, I think very rarely does any of this have to do with individual parents and what they want. And so you can't right. you can't give the game away on this one by talking about it too much because then parents will be able to step back and say, well, I want I want to be like, if I'm a, <laughs> if I'm a parent paying a zillion dollars in taxes in Loudoun County, I'm saying, well, if I'm paying this and getting that, that doesn't make sense to me. And if there's an alternative that says I can get something a lot closer to comparable, I would much rather do that. And so it's a hard thing to talk about uh, getting given those constraints. So the headlines in Florida, at least, have been horrible. The Florida mm -hmm. rule is if you disagree with the mask mandate or a ban, either way, whether you. Yeah. Whether you want the mask or not, you can choose. And I think that's the way it should be done, that yeah. it shouldn't be one way or the other. But NPR, for example, their headline is, DeSantis threatens school funds if Florida districts require masks. They're leaving the other side of that out. Right. Uh, you look at uh, the AP, AP News, Florida okay school vouchers in districts requiring masks. Uh, WPTV, Florida approved school voucher, uh, same one, Herald Tribune, Florida education leaders tie mask wearing to harassment. So they're only reporting it as if you get a voucher if you don't like the mask, which may be the case for a lot of families. Right. But the ruling is inclusive of everybody's views. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But they're turning it into like all these anti-mask parents. Yep. Um, and they're only including that in the headline. I think that's exactly. Problem. Exactly. And so I think the NPR one is is really illustrative of, of the problem here, right? DeSantis isn't saying isn't at all saying that he is going to tie the funding to sc for schools to their mass mandates. That, that's not what he said. He said he is leaving it in the hands of parents across Florida, and even NPR is able to concede that what that's going to mean is people aren't going to want to pay for it. Right? People are not going to want to keep sending their their dollars, given the option, to the public educational system if it means this thing. What NPR, if they're interested in actually telling you know reporting a story or being accurate or honest, I think what they would probably do is step back and say huh, why is it that so many parents would flee if this thing happens? Because it, it's not, I mean, it's, they, it's, it's actually earnestly manipulative to say that what is happening is done by the governor when all he's doing, again, this gets back to the freedom conversation. All he's doing is giving people the freedom to vote with their feet. Yep. Anything else is, 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 the decision, <laughs> is a decision entirely made by parents. So this, this leads us to a, a a two-part question um one and depending on how much time we have um got a well few minutes, five minutes yeah we got we got a good solid five minutes so yeah. um let me ask you this drew so it, it's obvious it's evident based on how this conversation has gone so far that you know how um and you I mean, you're very well versed in communications, right? In corporate Thank communications you, yeah. and stuff like that. 
So uh, let me ask you this. If you were to just happen upon Randy Weingarten in the street tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) and she says, Drew, I really need your advice. What (laughs) What should I be doing at the AFT? How can I communicate more effectively um, going forward? What would you advise them? And I think it would be fun to take, take a, like, do it both ways. Do it like if you were Drew and then, yeah. um, and then do it the other way where you're her communications, uh, you're being paid, you're on her payroll and yeah. uh, you have to advise her as the union president at AFT. So give us both. What would you do? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So first, I think the easier one is probably to be myself. So I'll, I'll start with that. <laughs> uh, listen, I think, I think what I would tell her is I would say, listen to the parent. Right. You're the, what you should be doing now and what you're not doing is having an earnest interest into the actual constituency that your specific constituents are supposedly serving. And that if you just do that, like truly, if you just make that one itty bitty simple change, I think it would help her a lot. One, two, I would tell her, listen to the science. Right. We've spent 18 months with a, a certain variety of liberals saying over and over again, trust the science, follow the science, listen to the science. I think that that phrase gets manipulated and turned on its head a lot. But I also think that there's merit to it when you're just looking at the, the raw scientific information. This is one of those cases where you've got it. You have teachers who are overwhelmingly vaccinated. We have good information to know that schools aren't hotspots. And we should be, and again, like absent this pandemic, I think the teachers unions, if you could go back in time two years and say, would it be bad if kids weren't in schools? They would all say, yes, of course, of course we know that this would be bad. We know what these consequences are. We know educational payment suffers. It would be go back to those things, right? Try and get Trump out of your head for 30 seconds and the specter of Trump out of your head for 30 seconds and go back to the way that you would talk about schools open, students in seats, if there had never been a pandemic with a president you didn't like in charge of it. That would be, I think, the ultimate guidance I would try and give her and say, this push her in this direction. So I think at the end of the day, whether or not what's good for the teachers' unions is good for students, I think what tends to be good for teachers is often good for students. And that this seems like a really, really striking case of, oh, that should be the case. Now, unfortunately, if I'm a comms director, right, take, take that hat off and, and put on the other one. <laughs> what I'm saying is CNN just called again. And for the fourth time this week, they want to have you on to talk about why DeSantis is evil. Right. And so all of their incentives, if I if I'm in the comm shop there, all of the incentives very clearly align with keep doing what she's doing, keep dragging her heels, because, listen, I mean, she's got the ear of the mainstream media very clearly who puts her on as the hero uncritically. Right. You, you can watch any interview she's done on CNN or MSNBC or ABC or what have you. They are they are overwhelmingly uh, it's, it's applause. Right. It's our she's, she's one of one of our nation's first responders, emergency heroes, whatever all it is. And right. so I would say. Keep digging your heels in here. You've got the ear of mainstream media. You've got the ear of the Biden administration. Why would we change gears now when it's very obvious that the people who we really need to have hear us, pandemic or not, are listening to us and listening to us more? The incentives, unfortunately, run directly away from the well-being of students, but they're very strong. And I think right now they're very clear. So that's a very... uh complex compu- uh, communications director scientific uh, response I have a quick I have a quick response if I'm a school choice advocate uh, my res- my uh, uh, my um, recommendations to Randy would be to keep doing what she's doing keep uh, overplaying her hand and pissing off parents 
if I'm um, <laughs> if I'm uh, truly trying to help her, I would say to, uh, delete your Twitter. Yes, uh, uh, delete delete your Twitter and tell her contractor to stop answering emails from bookers. Delete your account. Delete yeah. your account now. Okay, that would, cool. That would absolutely be in her best interest. So I, I think we're running up to. Um, I know you got another meeting, Drew. Uh, I want to say thanks uh, again for giving us so much of your time. I know the absolutely. Educational Freedom Institute list listeners really enjoyed your take on what the media got wrong over this past year and what they're still getting wrong when it comes to COVID-19 and school reopenings. Absolutely, yep. gentlemen. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. All right. And uh, thank you so much to all the listeners. This is another episode of the Educational Freedom Institute podcast. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.